Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Subject ACT. I'm Nathan Gubler. Uh, this is my debut episode, actually. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, great uh, honour to be on the show. And we are going to tackle gambling in the ACT and to help us interrogate the um, the statistics involved and the uh, quite murky debate surrounding uh, the issue. I have. Francis Markham, a PhD student at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU, where his research in, include, includes investigating the local impacts of pokies. Francis, welcome to Subject ACT. Thanks for having me here. Did I get that right? Good enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. Uh, so... Um, Oh, excuse me, I'm just going to adjust the microphone if you'll indulge me for a second. So, uh, firstly, um, your uh, the website uh, explains that you use geographic methods to uh, investigate uh, the impacts of pokey machines in local areas. Can you explain to the listener exactly what that means? Sure, it's a good question. Essentially... Um what my research has been setting out to do is to look at very small local areas, so uh, areas of around 200 houses or 400 people or so, and try and figure out what is the impact of poker machines in those areas in terms of problem gamblers. We know a lot about the number of problem gamblers there are at the state and territory level um, across Australia. There's been about 41 statewide surveys over the last 25 years in Australia, but they tell us really very little about what's going on in the local level. Mm. So in the suburb or within the suburb, which mm. areas are most impacted by gambling? And that's actually really important when we're trying to make licensing decisions. So when um, regulators are trying to decide whether or not to approve the introduction of more poker machines into an area, they actually have very little local information on which they can base their decisions. Mm. So my research has really been an attempt to provide some evidence that can go into that licensing process. Yeah, so... Um to lay it down straight, and you can be honest with us, Francis, does um, Canberra have a gambling problem? Well, look, Canberra has more poker machines than anywhere else in the country. Um, the national average is about 1.1 pokies per 100 adults. In Canberra, it's more like 1.7. Um, that's wow. higher than any state yeah. and territory. It's higher than even New South Wales, which certainly would be said to have a really high... Um, gambling problem by world standards and if you look at the Canberra numbers, does ah uh, sorry New South Wales New does. South Wales does yeah yeah and Canberra has more pokies than New South Wales yeah right um probably if you uh, look at it state by state um Canberra would have more pokies than almost anywhere in the world aside from Nevada where Las Vegas is in the US that's incredible and some small places like um you know in the Bahamas where they just have casinos as a and no like industry. restrictions or anything like that. That's right. Does so, Canberra even have restrictions? Like it's just sounding like a damning indictment on uh, Canberra. Well, we do have a cap on the number of poker machines, and that ha cap is actually um, been lowered after the last election, or it's been promised to be lowered after the last election. Right. However, the mechanisms for actually bringing those numbers down um, aren't clear, and it's not it's not clear entirely how we're going to get to that lower number. The uh, yeah, so because I remember in the campaign as well, and I was reflecting on that uh, just yesterday. Um, Labor were also going to ACT Labor, that is, they were going to take more pokey revenue and put that into um, resources to help problem gamblers. Um, but that proposition, huge resistance from um, 
the club's campaign, saying Labor was going to ruin the clubs, uh, which uh, was a pr- pretty f- familiar story uh, on the federal level when uh, the clubs ran a similar campaign against Labor. Yeah, and look, what's, what's different about Canberra is that that campaign wasn't very successful. So yeah, yeah. many of your listeners will probably be, remember the 2010 election where... Um, Federally, the clubs, the casinos and the Hotels Association ran pretty hard against Julia Gillard. And Gillard's government at that point, um, prompted by some pressure from Andrew Wilkie, was looking at introducing some evidence-based reforms to poker machines across the country. Um, There was a big campaign mounted um, by clubs, hotels and casinos, and really that... um, was successful in scaring a lot of Labor MPs into pressuring the government oh, right. to back down from reforms. Right. Um, so it never really was put to the put to the electorate. In the ACT, we had a um, just last year we had an election where mm. pokies figured very prominently, mm. and the clubs spent about a quarter of a million dollars campaigning. They even fund uh, bankrolled a new political party, the Canberra Community Voters. Yeah, um, I read that. Yeah. And that party got, I think, about 1,700 first preference votes. Now, that's less than the clubs have employees in Canberra. Mm. Um, so it was entirely unsuccessful. Yeah, um, right. It's one of the least successful kind of gambling um, electoral campaigns we've seen in the country. Wow. So really what that's done is kind of reset the political landscape, I think. Mm. And it's given the current government, a bit of a mandate to actually do something about poker machines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, and that reminds me, um, you were present at a screening of a documentary called Kaching Poker Nation, um, and that was an event uh, at the Polish White Eagle Club. Um, and uh, was there was there a big, um, like, big turnout, big, like, lots of engagement with the issue? Yeah, look, it was a very engaged audience. Um, probably would have been upwards of 50 people or so there, which right. were uh, community film screenings um, more than you would expect. And there are a lot of very engaged people um, from across the community. Right. Um, concerned citizens, people who are members of community organisations who um, witness the fallout from poker machines as part of their job, mm. people who have been touched by poker machines personally or as part of their family. So mm. um, there really was a core of concerned citizens there. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the statistics I found was that um, 2% from uh, the... Let me uh, look at the title here. It was called The Gambling Expenditure in the ACT Study, uh, released by the Centre for Gambling Research at ANU, which your name was on the paper, um, saying that uh, 2% of the population... I, um, uh, what you might call problem gamblers, and we might define that a bit later. But that, that 2% contribute 21% of all gambling losses. That is enormous. That's right, and it's actually probably, if anything, that's an underestimate. Right, So wow. the, the kind of national estimate is that there's about 1% who contribute uh, 40 to 60% of gambling expenditure nationally. Wow. Um, so it's a huge, it's a huge amount, and really. And what dollar numbers are we talking? Well, in the ACT uh, last financial year, there was 170 million dollars lost on the pokies. Yeah. Um, so if you're talking about 40 percent of that coming from um, people who are experiencing harm from their gambling, that's 70 million dollars from people who are having trouble, um, you know, controlling their the amount that they spend. Mm. 70 million dollars coming out of um, yeah. expenses, discretionary spending, savings, mortgages, and so on. Yeah, right. Um, and another thing that Kaching 
Pokey Nation kind of highlighted for me. And it kind of goes back to the ACT Labor idea of funneling Pokey revenue into uh, help for problem gamblers, is that there tends to be these personal responsibility campaigns launched by governments. And the issue with that is that, for the one thing, the governments are quite well aware that they're such a like a big source of revenue, the pokies. So um, it's like it's kind of conf- conflict of interest almost. Yeah. yeah um, look, there's a well-known kind of um, campaign that's um, conducted throughout industry and government known as responsible gambling. And, mm. you know, you'll see that whenever you see an, an advertisement for sports betting on TV, for example. There'll be a very loud and flashy advertisement, and then at the bottom in small print, it'll say, gamble responsibly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's that's really the uh, regulatory paradigm that's been around for the last um, probably 15 years or so. Right. Um, it's been come under a lot of criticism in academia, certainly, because really what gamble responsibly means is that the individual is responsible for their gambling. That's really what the message is there. Yeah, and the problem absolutely. with that is that we know that poker machines are designed to be as addictive as possible. Mm, mm. There's been some very thorough research that's interviewed um, game designers, people who work in um, casinos and venues and have developed poker machines. And that research has really shown that um, poker machines are designed to be addictive. They're designed to maximise profit for the people who um, operate them. And the reason, the way that they maximise their profit is by um, essentially making people lose every dollar they have. Right. Yeah. Um, actually, on the addictive uh, nature of poking machines, uh, for one thing, um, we found out in the documentary, which I mentioned earlier, that um, that poking machine, like gambling uh, addiction, is classified in the substances um, area of a psychiatric uh, study, and um, uh, that. I, what I'm trying to get at is um, ha, what what's, what are the addictive properties of uh, pokey machines? Well, look, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, so I won't speak about this in psychological terms. Yep. But essentially, the way that poker machines operate on your brain is very similar to the way that something like cocaine operates on your brain. Mm, mm. The kind of neural pathways that are involved are very similar. Um, if you put people under an MRI scan that lights up the active parts of their brain... Um, the parts that light up when pe- people are addicted to poker machines are the same that light up when people are addicted to cocaine. Mm. And essentially it is an addiction. It's just one that comes through um, blinking lights and reinforcement schedules rather than one that comes from ingesting a substance. Yeah. Um, before we go to a music break, uh, Francis Markham from A&U, um, I promised I'd throw this quote at you uh, and uh, you're just going to have to wince through it uh, for the listener. But um, Mark Parton, who is uh, a member of the Legislative Assembly for the Canberra Liberals, um, said that more people were addicted to chocolate than to gambling, hence like trying to downplay, so to speak, the, uh, the issue of problem gambling in the ACT. And his defence for that comparison was um, that it's, uh, he was talking about freedom, uh, personal, uh, personal liberties, so to speak. Uh, he's quoted as saying, it's not for governments to decide what people can and can't spend their money on. Um, is, I don't know, is there any validity at all to, like, I don't know, liberties or, um, or what, what are your thoughts on that comment? Well, look, on the chocoholics comment, it's a pretty absurd comment. The reality is nobody loses their house because they eat too much chocolate. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's something like 400 nothing suicides a year right. because of poker machines. <laughs> there's nothing like that for chocolate. It's a pretty banal and absurd um, observation, and I'd suggest that, um, you know, the comparison isn't a very sensible one. Yeah, right. Um, and this was also to do with Shane Rattenbury calling for um, a review of the cash withdrawal system, which is that you can only take out $250... You might have to explain that a bit more because it's like you're you're limited how much you can take out, and yet clubs have been able to let problem gamblers take money out via other means. Would you be able to elucidate us on that? Yeah. So one of the things that's um, become very clear um, in the course of sort of 25 years of gambling research is that problem gamblers can spend a lot of money on the pokies in one night. So uh, recently, there's been a prominent. Uh, University of Canberra academic who's come and sp- come out and spoken about her gambling addiction. Mm, mm. She lost $230,000 over the course of several months, and that would involve losing, you know, hundreds or if not thousands of dollars a night. Mm. Um, so one of the um, measures that was introduced um, nearly a decade ago now uh, limited the amount of money that people could withdraw from ATMs in uh, poker machine venues to $250. So you could withdraw $250, and then if you went back to that ATM machine um, that same day, you wouldn't be able to withdraw any money. And mm. the idea was that this would help people who are caught up in the moment to stop, have to leave the venue if they wanted to continue gambling. Mm. Um, so it's quite a well-evidenced harm minimization measure. Um, where it's been introduced elsewhere, it's reduced the amount lost by about 10%. Oh, okay, right. Um, so this was introduced in Canberra, and, you know, it seemed like a great idea. The problem was that the legislation had a loophole, which was that you could have EFTPOS machines with a cash-out facility, mm. and uh, essentially they weren't covered by the law. Mm. So what happened was that the clubs um, introduced these EFTPOS machines. They were very automated in some cases, so often, um, you know, you might have to key your PIN, but the money would be spat out, you know, of a dispenser rather than somebody handing it over to you. Right. So essentially, clubs did what they could to exploit this loophole and essentially um, introduce FPOS machines that are very similar to ATMs. Yeah, right. Um, so this is the loophole that's looking to be closed. Mm. Um, the what, What's interesting about this is it's also demonstrated the way in which clubs' um, preferred model of gambling reform, which is self-regulation, doesn't work. Mm. So when this loophole first came to prominence um, in 2014, um, the regulator started to put pressure on the clubs to close the loophole and do something about this. So yeah, they sure. said, we'll introduce a voluntary code of practice um, mm. Mm. that we won't allow this loophole to be exploited. Yeah, sure. But um, just last month, a report came out by the uh, Gambling and Racing Commission where they actually went round and tried to see what was going on, mm. tried to withdraw cash from FPOS machines and ATMs. And in almost every club, the loophole was still being exploited, despite the club signing up for this voluntary code of practice. Yeah. So it's really shown that... Well, I guess the key word's voluntary, isn't it? That's right. Mm. So, And it just shows that we need legislation in this area. We can't trust the gambling industry to regulate itself. Yeah, sure. Uh, we're going to go to a music break, and then we'll be back on Subject ACT. We're speaking to Francis Markham, a PhD student at the Fenner School of Environment and Society. 
And you are back on Subject ACT. You're here with me, Nathan Gubel, and I'm speaking to Francis Markham from the ANU, talking to us about mainly about pokies and pokey reform. Uh, we just recently just touched on the cash withdrawal system. Um, actually, uh, on the point that you made about um, the club's preferred method, um, yeah, so... Is it Athol Chalmers from the? Uh, he's the president of Community Clubs ACT. Uh, he actually agreed that it was ineffective. The cash withdrawal system. Well, not not agreed. You agreed with that. Uh, but um, he said uh, that the the issue was that the staff need to be encouraged to intervene on problem gamblers. And it actually reminded me of um, when I was. Uh, uh, working at a news agency, and we were kind of told this, a similar things like if you see someone like with a problem, you need to like talk to them rather than you know maybe report it to someone. Is um I don't would there be any benefit in like reporting to like I don't know a body to say hey I've noticed this particular problem gambler. Well, look, there's a couple of things to say about that. The first thing is that all staff in clubs on the gaming floor are already required to undertake responsible service of gambling training, mm. and they are meant to intervene when people are displaying signs of problem gambling. The reality is that we know that they don't. There's these codes of conduct about how clubs are meant to, um, you know, uh, exhibit a duty of care for mm. their patrons. And in case after case, if you speak to people who are in treatment for problem gambling or who've lost a lot of money, those um, they just haven't had interventions from um, the staff on the gaming floor. Mm. And when you speak to people who, you know, this isn't research, but this is anecdotal evidence. Mm -hmm. When I speak to people who um, work on the gaming floor in clubs, very often... They're very young. They're not particularly well paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a very confronting thing to, huge, to go up to it? someone and yeah. say, you know, I think maybe you have a gambling problem. Do you want to talk about that with me or with somebody else? Because I and I know you're not a psychologist in any way, but I guess the uh, mindset of uh, people with uh, addiction in general is that I don't have an addiction. I have complete control over my actions. Yeah, well, and look, it's a it's a big burden to place on a um, gaming floor staff member who's probably um, their training isn't up to it. And really what we should be trying to do is prevent people from becoming addicted to gambling in the first place mm. rather than putting a huge burden of responsibility on gaming floor staff to intervene when we know that they already are meant to intervene and it doesn't mm. really happen. So although you agreed with uh, a cash withdrawal uh, limit, um, a far better reform would be to just lower the amount of pokies accessible to the public. Yeah, and look... Poker machines are a bit like tobacco in that there's not going to be a silver bullet, a single reform that solves the poker machine problem. It's going to take a suite of measures. So mm. if you look at tobacco, we've had things like bans on advertising. We've had things like increases in an excise tax or a levy. We've had paying packaging. Mm. We've had them being withdrawn from um, site in supermarkets and so on. Mm. And it's going to take a similar kind of holistic approach with poker machines. Mm. So one of those measures is a reduction in the number of poker machines, and I think more crucially, a reduction in the number of poker machine venues. Right. So they okay. are less accessible throughout the community. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a range of other measures, though, that um, are very well supported by the evidence, particularly uh, measures that were identified by the Productivity Commission. Um, amongst them are cash withdrawal um, limits. Other measures are $1 maximum bets, um, and $1 maximum bets are quite an interesting thing. So at the moment, if you go to a poker machine in a club in Canberra, 
you, every time you press the button, which is around about every three or four seconds, um, you can bet up to $10. Wow. And that means Huge. that if you play at that level for an hour, yeah, yeah. on average, you'll lose about $1,200 an hour. <laughs> and that can, that'll go up and down. So it could be as high as, you know, several thousand yeah. dollars in an hour. Yeah. Um, if you, if the maximum you could bet on a single spin was reduced to a dollar, then that, uh, average hourly loss would be reduced to $120. Mm. And the thing is that about 90% of people who um, don't have a gambling problem never bet more than a dollar anyway. Mm, mm. So the vast majority of people who play pokies who don't have a problem, um, who aren't experiencing significant harms, wouldn't even notice this change. Mm. But it would actually slow down the amount of money lost by people who are addicted to pokies um, to so a substantial it's degree. Less, it's less the amount. It's kind of just more the experience of playing that's kind of... Drawing people in, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but if you can um, reduce the amount that's actually lost, mm. because we know that the amount lost is what's causing people harm, because mm. it's money that's not spent on other things. Mm. Um, so if we can reduce the amount that people lose, it's really a harm reduction measure. Mm. You know, it's um, even if people do have a problem with poker machines, they just won't be harming themselves and their families to such a great degree if they're mm. losing less money. Mm. Um, we don't have much more time, uh, Francis, but uh, I just wanted to quickly throw this question at you. So uh, there was the incident of the uh, University of Canberra academic who'd lost um, thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and a lot of people were saying this breaks the myth of uh, problem gambling being the domain of lower socioeconomic people. But um, from what I understand, and I might be wrong on this, um, it does affect lower socioeconomic people uh, to a far greater degree. Yeah, so it's a, it's a slightly nuanced kind of issue. Right. So problem gambling does cut across the whole community mm. and you have, you know, full professors who end up um, having gambling problems as this recent case demonstrates. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't affect uh, lower socioeconomic status groups more. And the starkest illustration of this is in Sydney, um, and we can see in Sydney that in western suburbs and particularly areas like Fairfield, the average amount lost on pokies is well over $2,000 per person per year. Mm. That's not per player. That's that's for every adult in the area. Then if you look on, the, say, the inner north shore around Lane Cove or what have you, <coughs> the amount lost is um, about $50 a year. So we're talking about a, 50, a factor of 50 um, greater expenditure in the western suburbs compared mm. to the inner north shore. Mm. So we do know that this is really a um, class pattern phenomenon as well. So, mm. you know, there's this that doesn't mean that it's only something that affects lower socioeconomic status groups, yeah. but it does affect them disproportionately, which yeah. is particularly problematic because they generally have less money to lose in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Francis Markham, we've run out of time. I've been speaking to Francis Markham, a PhD student, at the ANU, uh, he informed me uh, just in the break that he's uh, submitted his PhD. So uh, all the best, Francis, and thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Uh, that concludes our program for today. Join us each weekday, 8.30 to 9 o'clock a.m. on 2XXFM 98.3, subject ACT. You can stream us live at 2XXFM.org.au slash listen or catch up on all our podcast episodes at soundcloud.com com slash subject ACT and stay in touch via Facebook and Twitter. Community radio needs you, so please support this station by subscribing, 
via 2xfm.org.au. Stay tuned for more. Uh, ACT at Work is on after this. I'm Nathan Goobler. Have a great morning, Canberra, and thank you, Francis, for coming on.